little nerds and nerdettes. Junior ambassadors, boys and girls of all ages. We're nerds and uh, we're pretty proud of it. You're entering the Nerd United Nations podcast. Never apologize for being nerdy. All things geek are up for grabs. Because unnerdy people never apologize for being assholes. Now, here's your ambassadors, Melissa Nicholson and Jared Boots. How do you do? Miss Melissa Nicholson and Mr. Jared Boots of the Nerd Night and Nations podcast feel it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without a friendly word of warning. They're about to celebrate the 90th anniversaries of Universal Motion Pictures' Dracula and Frankenstein, two films whose fame surpasses the source material they were created from. This truly is the second best tribute ever told. Next to our show... Pods and Monsters. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I'm sorry, where was I? I think the nerd chat will intrigue you. It may educate you. It might even entertain you. So if any of you feel you do not care to subject your ears to two nerds discussing black and white films, now's your chance to, uh, well, we've warned you. Good evening. I am Jared, and welcome to the Nerd United Nations podcast. Hey guys, I'm just fooling around. It's Jared. Welcome back to the Nerd United Nations podcast. I, of course, am your ambassador to the Midwest United States. Of course, you saw in the title, we are talking about the 90th, yes, you heard me correctly, 90 goddamn years of Universal's Frankenstein and Dracula. Of course, I cannot do this alone. I need my fellow Universal Monster lover. So I bring in the big guns. I need my co-host in the Great West. Uh, I need my co-host to the Great White North of Canada, Miss Melissa Nicholson. Melissa, good evening. Good evening. <laughs> Wait, you hear that? Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. <laughs> you know, from watching these films, I found a way to do a good impressions of some of these actors. And the way I could tell from doing a good impression of Bela Lugosi is mm. you always have to look pleased with yourself with everything you're saying. Because mm. you can always tell when Bella is speaking, he's always on the verge of smiling. Yeah. So it's almost like whenever he speaks, he's very pleased with himself. <laughs> yes good job Bella <laughs> so Melissa how are you doing I'm doing very well how are you well I'm ready to talk about some of my favorite movies of all time or at least some of my favorite horror movies of all time as am I I'm super excited for this yeah if you got I wish homework in high school was this fun or this easy. I would have gotten 
I would have gotten higher than a C average. <laughs> I think I would have too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I admitted on uh, Phil Bark, our friend Phil Barker's podcast, uh, Superhero Stress. I never took algebra or physics in high school. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I've heard him talk on the internet. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Believe it or not, the Universal Horror Films, or two of the first Universal Horror Films, uh, turned 90 years old this year. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a little celebration to it, because like myself, Melissa loves these horror films. They are, when I think of classic horror, you know, my, most kids probably think of the slashers from the 80s, or now we're probably getting to the point where people are going to say Scream is a classic now. When I think classic horror films, they, these titles are the ones that come to mind. What about you, Melissa? Absolutely. Like, if, if somebody says, you know, classic movies, it's like, I, specifically classic horror movies, I'm going to think, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and, and Wolfman. And I'm not necessarily going to think, you know, your, your 80s movies of, like, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, those, I mean... Yes, they're kind of your quote unquote older films, but they're not a classic film. Well, you know, with like I, 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 I would argue that they're I would argue they're classics in their own right. Yeah, they are. But I think for you know, if you were to say maybe the more traditional classic, maybe is the word. I don't know, but yeah, I would think instantly. You know, your your Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein. Um, for the for the classic horrors and and like I said like you know the iconic actors and and stuff like that so yeah that's instantly what I think of agreed agreed so uh, we are gonna start with Dracula because it came out first chronologically and then we're gonna move on to Frankenstein so normally this is where we do uh, a roundtable discussion but. I didn't really feel like the format would really fit this. So we just want to have a general, genuine celebration of these two films. But we do have some questions playing that we hope generates a discussion. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, actually, this episode was supposed to be a, a printed page of silver screen. And Guy Milks, if you're listening, you were right. I never should have read Dracula. Two pages in, I was like, fuck this. I'm not going to make another 300. <laughs> Plus, doing my research, Dracula is more based off the play than it is the of the book. But I will, I'm not dissing on the book. I will read it eventually when I'm not at a time crunch to read it. Mm-hmm. Melissa made it much farther into Mary Shelley's Frankenstein than I did. <laughs> yeah, I made it to chapter 2, page 34 of <laughs> Frankenstein. It was, uh, it's... It's a tough read in the sense of it's a little bit you're wondering sort of who these characters are that you're being introduced to. And I found myself a little bit lost because it was these different characters and and um, and then just the, the language being used. And not that it was tough, but it was just like, OK, thinking of, you know, the words that they're using and okay, these are, I know what these words mean and, and stuff like that. So it was a little bit of a, okay, wrap your head around it first, and then, okay, I can sort of get into the story. And 
it's a very a very dry read. Um, it's it's one that doesn't just you know from the off you know buckle up because you're in for a ride. It's very dry. It's very kind of slow, and you know I I see I did flip through a little bit farther into the book, and it's it's very philosophical and a little bit existential just because it it talks about life and death and and observing it and you know talking about it. it's one big basically once you get farther into the story it's one big philosoph philosophical thought <laughs> story and uh so yeah it, i mean it's i think i might go back to it um kind of give it another chance um but obviously for kind of time constraints it was sort of one of those where you know um it was i got sort of the way through it and then decided no i can't go any farther and i i just closed the book on that one (laughs) (laughs) and full disclosure melissa was secretly waiting for me to say you know what let's not do the books (laughs) because i was randomly texting melissa like do you want to not want to do the books (laughs) and and i i um enthusiastically said please <laughs> like, you know I'll, I'll watch a couple hour hour and 10 minute long films instead <laughs> <laughs> but like we're not discouraging anybody out there to not read the books or if you are fans of the books more power to you like it was it was probably the first like i said the last time we did a book comparison it really felt like homer because my brain was so fried trying to read christine which I did finally enjoy it once I got into it, but um, it fried my brain so much. Uh, maybe we'll try. Well, maybe we'll try a book to screen again with like Berenstain Bears or something. <laughs> something my little, my tiny brain can handle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have quite the collection of uh, of Berenstain Bears books, so uh, from my from my childhood. So we're good to go if you ever want to do that. <laughs> oh wait, 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 wait. Berenstain, Berenstein, I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> yes, this is true. But, so, yeah, and I, I definitely, you know, I can certainly respect that. I, I, I've done a little bit of research into the the story of Frankenstein itself, and I can respect that, you know, Mary Shelley was 18 when she wrote this book, and it blows my mind that an 18-year-old wrote the story. So... Total respect there. Respect. I'll drink to that. <laughs> so let's get into it. Uh, we're going to start with Dracula, which actually just had its 90th anniversary back in February. Uh, Dracula came out February 12th, 1931. And from listening to our friends of the show, Robert Nithia, on their uh on their podcast, Pods and Monsters, uh, they actually mentioned, which is also quick plug for them. Great podcast. Give it a listen wherever you can find your pod- or podcast because it's a show directed strictly at these Universal films, and they do a random horror film in between each horror film or each Universal film. So I highly recommend. But I learned on their show that director Todd Browning wrote to the theaters because it was originally supposed to come out on Friday the 13th. And he told theaters that he was superstitious, so he got him to push it up to February 12th of 1931. Um, the film stars the 
ever, ever classic Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula. Uh, Dwight Fry as the scene chewing Renfield. Uh, Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. Herbert Bunston as Dr. Seward. Just to name a few. And the IMDb plot synopsis is, After a naive real estate agent succumbs to the will of Count Dracula, the two head to London where the vampire sleeps in his coffin by day and searches for potential victims by night. So, Melissa, um, what are you, were your, when was the first time you saw Dracula? What were your initial thoughts of it when you first saw it? Hmm. Um, when did I first see it? I think it might have been maybe uh, maybe late high school, something like that. So around uh, maybe like 2009-ish maybe when I saw it. Not 1000% sure, but um, yeah, it was in around there when I when I saw the film, and um, I really liked it. Um, I thought it was it was a really good uh, film. I thought it was it was a little bit slower paced, but it was okay. Like it still sort of went along, and and um, it it never took away from me enjoying it. And um, you know, Bella Lugosi's performance was just amazing in it. And um, yeah, I I really. I, I really enjoyed it. There wasn't anything that I, I didn't like or, you know, didn't, um, didn't have anything to critique over it. <laughs> and it was sort of in that middle, it was, it was kind of a good time for me to watch the vampire thing. Cause like I, or like watch Dracula, um, because I was sort of on a vampire kick with another book series that I was on. So it was, it was a good time, um, to watch it. And I, I absolutely enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done. These vampires in this book didn't sparkle, did they? No. No, no. <laughs> no, okay, this, was, this is a book series written by Darren Shan. And it's a it's a boy who gets caught, or not really gets caught, but he he becomes a vampire and it's his journey through becoming that. And it, nobody sparkles, nobody has any love interest, baloney, whatever. Story, not story, Twilight. You suck. Uh, no, none of no vampire sparkles, and this one was kick-ass series of books. Anyway, <laughs> vampire sparkle sounds like some kind of goth My Little Pony. No kidding. Um, <laughs> I actually didn't see Dracula till I was in my late twenties. I think mid to late twenties, because it is a time where I was just—I think I was actually starting to seek out more classic films like it's almost like i grew up i was kind of a sensitive child growing up so like horror films and stuff mm. kind of afraid i was kind of afraid of this kind of things but now you get the early age you start to get um embrace the older culture the older films and you start to get this kind of stuff out and it seems like the more and more into halloween i got the older i got the more i wanted to seek out dracula wolfman frankenstein creature from the black lagoon the invisible man and the first time I saw Dracula, I was at work watching on my lunch break because, uh, 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 and just from the opening song, the opening theme from Swan Lake, Act Two is Act Two of Swan Lake, if I read correctly on IMDb. Just that 
that music just hooks you in right away from the beginning. And it does such a great job of just building that suspense. And I'm sitting there like a lot of modern horror movies kind of learn from this, this how you build the suspense of Renfield making his way up to Dracula's castle and then meeting Dracula. Then going, them going to London, like just building this suspense the whole way through. Mm -hmm. And I've, I believe it was the first universal horror movie I saw. And I just fell in love with it ever since I've been in, a more hardcore monster film person than ever now. So, yeah, yeah I remember my my first one was The Invisible Man. Uh, I saw that one first, and then I saw Dracula, and uh, yeah, and then it was like Creature from the Black Lagoon and all that, and I just was totally hooked on it. I wasn't, and it was funny because like watching these movies and like, you know, I I wasn't really into horror at the time, not as much as I am now. Like, full-on, you know, more slasher, the freaking better. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, it, it's funny that I did get into those, as I wasn't really into the horror genre, but I still enjoyed, like, Invisible Man and, and Dracula and that, so, yeah. Well, well, you know what's good about this? It's, like, if you call this a horror film, that... A, you only see blood once in the whole film. That's when Renfield cuts him, cuts his finger mm. on the paperclip at the beginning of the film. And you never see Dracula bite anybody. No. You get very close. Like, you see him going in yeah. for it, but you never. And that was probably one thing I noticed last night, because Melissa and I are talking off air, off mic, that we've watched these films numerous times over the last handful of years and mm -hmm. it's at least the last decade each for us yeah and there's certain things you never noticed before and I'm sitting, so you're sitting here paying attention so you can pick up every detail you can when you're about to podcast on it mm -hmm. and there's some things i watched last night and like last night when i was watching i'm like i never noticed you never see him bite anybody in this film he yeah. and when you do research in other films uh, for example, I watched um, one of the Hammer Dracula films uh, prepared for this episode with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Uh, I, I I tried to watch the Satanic Rite of Dracula, which was one of the second to last Hammer Dracula film, and it took place in the 70s. I got about 20 minutes into it. I told Melissa that I'm done. So I, uh, I, uh, I wanted to find like, a real classic Hammer Dracula film. So I found the first one, um, The Horror of Dracula, I believe it's called, and it came out in 1957 with uh, Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, Christopher Lee as Dracula. And what I like was Michael Goff, who played Alfred in the in the Burton and Schumacher Batman films. He's young in this film, and he looks just like Adam West. Hand to God, look up Michael Goff from. Uh, the Hammer Dracula films, and he looks like Adam West oh, in the wow. 60s Batman show. It's insane. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, Christopher Lee's portrayal of Dracula, too. And so I, I just want to get that portrayal. Like, I wanted to, I wanted to, for preparing for this episode, I wanted to take in so many incarnations of Dracula and Dr. Frankenstein and the creature as much as I could. And, mm -hmm. 
I'm glad I found the the horror of Dracula on YouTube. I had to watch it with Spanish subtitles, and it did not disappoint. It it was very entertaining. It was nice to see like a different perspective. I've always heard about Hammer horror films. Mm-hmm. I've never really watched any Hammer horror films, but I really sat down and I enjoyed it. Mm. Interesting. It's it really is is neat to see that you know, such an, an old story has been adapted into so many different incarnations and it, you know, and each one is different. You know, each, each actor that plays that character isn't going to play it the same as say Bella Lugosi or, you know, it's, it's not going to be the same. Everybody's going to have their different interpretation, especially of the story too. I mean, you may not, especially with the, like the hammer horror films, like they didn't really, follow the story they just took that character and placed them into a story that they created so and that was sort of their their biggest sort of quote-unquote mission was to not retell the story but to make take the character and sort of make it their own and create the world around them and you know i I think that's kind of neat when you you put the character into different situations like that and um yeah it's it's so cool to see that you know there are so many different incarnations, and you know they're not they're not all the same. So, and and it continues on even now. You know everybody telling the story, or uh, just using that character. So even as of 2020, we have a Dracula miniseries on uh, Netflix, mm-hmm. which I have not I have not seen yet. But uh, when I was digging for stuff to find for the podcast, I didn't notice it. I plan on going back to it eventually. I'm, I'm still working on uh, Joe Hill's uh, Nosferatu, which is another uh, vampire uh, miniseries or show. Yeah, uh, so actually, actually, a couple of quick facts about Dracula. Um, so, like I said, uh, or I kind of mentioned. Uh, so, did so. Kind of glad I didn't really have to read the book um, because this film is actually more based off of the 1927 Broadway production by Hamilton Dean. And because the stock market crashed in 1929 and the beginning of the Great Depression, Universal chose not to risk a big budget adaptation of the novel, which I guess they originally had planned. And they went for the Hamilton Dean stage play instead. And uh, Bell Lugosi, Edward Van Sloan, and Dr. Heber Bunston, uh, or no, Hubert, Herbert Bunston, who played Dr. Seward, uh, were the only three actors in the 1927 Broadway production that played their roles in the film, too. Oh, wow. And, one th- and then knowing that now and watching the film, it seems very much like a play. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, that was one thing I had picked up on when I, um, I remember when I first saw it, it, it was very much almost like a stage play. Like, your your different acts and characters coming in and out. And, yeah, it, it like, it was still obviously a movie, but, yeah, it was very much, had that feel of a, of a stage play. Yeah, uh, I got that feeling, too. Um, I will, in, prepare, in preparation for this episode, I watched the original silent film, Nosferatu, from 1922, which... Yes, you heard that correctly, 1922, which means next year, that film turns 100 years old. Wow. 
and i i watched a i watched a blu-ray adaptation of it uh on youtube and it looked beautiful for it being a almost 100 year old film looked good in hd blu-ray um but that also based off had to be based off a of play because that's all broken down in acts as well so you had like act one this part act two this part act three this part and I saw a lot of actual similarities between that and this Dracula film too. Hmm. It, uh, it also reminded watching this last night, or yeah, watching this film last night um, in preparation. It reminded me a lot of another Todd Browning film that I really enjoyed, and that's Freaks, that came out a year after this. And um, we talk about how it's like a play. So everything is like its own separate segment. It doesn't, and I'm not saying it's in a bad way. It doesn't feel like the film does have a flowing plot, but everything seems like its own little section or like its own act. So Renfield, the whole, consider the whole first act, Renfield meeting Dracula, Dracula and Renfield coming to London. And then I would probably say act one would stop right around when, Dracula and Redfield meet Dr. Seward and the ladies and everything. Mm-hmm. And then act two would be when Van Helsing comes into the picture. And then act three would become when Van Helsing is on to Dracula and up to the climax. Mm-hmm. So while it does feel like it's just a bunch of segments patched together, it still flows very well and makes for an entertaining story. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it absolutely does. It's it's so like you know engaging from the from beginning to end. Like I I never feel like you know I'm I'm genuinely entertained and and you know like engaged when, when watching the film and you know it, it keeps your attention, which is you know which is really neat. So maybe it might have been a good choice to uh, base off the play. Because it has that flow to it. Because who knows, and back in the 30s, trying to adapt something out of a book, who knows if it would flow the same way? Or, or how would you know what chunks of the book to adapt and what to leave out? So exactly. maybe maybe basing it off the play was probably like a blessing in disguise for this production. Well, I'm sure. like It, it probably you know, uh, very much condensed it down a lot. You know, took out the you know, details, you know, extra details and things and just made it into one sort of basic story. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it helped them a lot to, okay, let's construct a film out of this. And, you know, they, they obviously did very successfully. So. Uh, so as we kind of transition to our favorite, some of our favorite scenes and performances in the film, like, the two whole pages of the book I read is it's uh, Jonathan Harker's diary mm-hmm. and him going to Transylvania to sign this over to sign the castle. I should have wrote down the name of the castle. <laughs> um, the Dracula's going to buy, but um, uh, essentially replaced Jonathan Harker with Renfield in this production. But in the, in the, Hammer production is Jonathan Harker that goes to Dracula's castle. Hmm. So that, that was nice. So, any uh, favorite scenes 
that stick out to you? Hmm. I don't know. Um I didn't get to to rewatch the the film, so it's it's been it's been a little bit since I've seen it. Um I don't know. I I have to <laughs> kind of have to go with the whole movie because I'm not sure there's there's <laughs> one particular scene that that stands out um, for me. But that that was probably my my own uh, my own fault for for not being able to rewatch it. So. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll I'll ramble on for a minute or two and see if it kicks out your memory. Sure. So. Um, one of my favorite movies is probably one of the most iconic, and it's when Renfield meets Dracula for the first time at the castle. Yes, Dracula is the one driving the uh, carriage. Uh, well, he meets Dracula's carriage at some spot I can't remember where but to take him up to Dracula's castle. But when he meets Dracula proper, I, you get the classic "Children of the Night" line, mm-hmm. and "Good evening, I am Dracula." And then that whole interaction there too, and then going up to the bedroom where Renfield would be staying, and then having the whole "I never drink, why?" Those such classic lines, but but apart from because Bella Lugosi is such a charming Dracula, like you can see how he's able to put people under his influence because he will charm the pants right off you. They say like Christopher Lee's Dracula was like the first one that they introduced that little sex appeal to Dracula, why women would be attracted to to him. Mm-hmm. But I'd, I would say that Bela Lugosi does a good job of having that too in this uh, in this film too, because after he meets the women at the opera house, like yeah, even though they're kind of mocking him, like Marquesel Transylvania, while they're getting ready for bed or whatever they were doing in that particular scene, they still seem very um captivated by Dracula and uh easy to fall under his power. Like even when he shows up after he infects uh Mina, she's still very captivated by him. And he's playing it very like I hope my stories did not trouble you. I hope you didn't take my tr- my story so serious. Like he's he's just a, he's charming as hell, man. Like even like starting, I think it really starts to woo the pants off of Doctor Seward too, <laughs> at one point in this film too. Like they're just like any every everybody in this film is fooled by Dracula except for John and uh, Van Helsing. Everybody mm-hmm. else is like under his spell. Like he is so charming. Yeah. You know, when when you know everybody else is looking at him and that. You know the, the only few that are like okay there there's there's something up with him we we see through him but then everybody else is just oh, <laughs> we like you a lot. <laughs> it's a, a charming count from back west. Of course. <laughs> but uh, I mentioned him early in the uh, in the introduction. The scene chewing Dwight Fry as Renfield. As soon as he gets infected by Dracula or put under Dracula's spell, he steals the hell out of this movie 
and chews. I don't know how he has room for flies and spiders in his stomach because he is chewing so much scenery in every scene he is in. And boy, how did I, I jokingly called this myself. I called this scene chewing one oh one. Like people think people think Jack Nicholson chews the scenery in Batman eighty nine as the Joker. Mm. Rent uh, Dwight Fry wrote the book on and ch- scene chewing in this film and it he ended up getting typecast in these type of roles after this too because he this was right before he did Frankenstein and Fritz is a lot more uh reserved than uh Renfield is mm-hmm. but uh, like I said once he's under Dracula's power within the first 10 minutes of the film he is as soon as you see him pass out in his room the next time you see him, master, master, the sun is gone. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about like one of the, talk about one of the creepiest like laughs ever. <laughs> like when they finally dock, when they finally dock in London and the constables are like opening the door and they just see him at the bottom of the stairs laughing. Like, would you not shit your pants? <laughs> that is so unsettling. Like if if I was there and I heard or, and saw him, I would be just <laughs> I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> I think I'm just gonna just walk away and, and just go the other way. <laughs> he he absolutely nailed oh, oh. just unsettling uncomfortable vibe thing like just uh <laughs> but but you you love them though cuz it's just you know that that kind of the crazy character so well, like if i was that constable and i look down there and see that face glaring back at me I'm like turn around and go nope <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nope 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I wa- I rewatched this film sometime back in the spring or summer when I first moved in my apartment, and so I just threw threw these on as threw these monster movies on as uh, background noise while I was unpacking. You are an avid Joker, Mark Hamill Joker fan as much as I am, correct? Oh, it has. And Mark Ham- Mark Mark Hamill has gone on record by saying his Joker voice was inspired by Claude Rains and the Invisible Man, which when you watch it, you can see. And he tweeted to you, didn't that? He tweeted you that to you, didn't he? Uh, you tweet to him about something? Nope. Oh, there was somebody yep. uh, printed new. Just, there was a, Mark Hamill. Um, there was there was a mini episode thing I saw on one of the social medias, and it was the thing he was talking about um, his voice acting and. And uh, where his sort of inspirations came from for all the the characters that he had done over the years, and yeah, he had mentioned that yeah, Claude Rains, um, Invisible Man was one of his influences for for Joker, and um, yeah, that's where I found it. It was a little sort of history of Mark Hamill's voice acting um, was where where um, I had seen that. Well, I've heard him say it on Fat Man on Batman back when I used to listen to that. Um, he mentioned Claude Rains. He mentioned the Blue Meanie from uh, mm-hmm. Yellow Submarine. 
when I was rewatch doing a rewatch of uh, Dracula back in the spring last spring, you hear that first time you hear Renfield laugh when he's doing <laughs> like I'm like I wonder I sat there I'm like I wonder if Hamill got like oh, I just wonder if there's a little bit of Dwight Fry in there I mm. just wonder I mean there could be I get like I could I could hear it um, maybe I mean, one of his bigger influences may have been Claude Rains, but I wonder, yeah, there might have been that tiny influence, too. Um, I mean, there's so many things, really. So if anybody's wanting to learn how to do a good Joker laugh, I'd say Dwight Fry would be just as good of a place to look as uh, Claude Rains is. Mm -hmm. Claude Rains' performance in Invisible Man is a good, like, with the laugh and the gravelly voice, that's definitely something to work off of, but damn is Dwight Fry like would be a good inspiration for the Joker. Yeah, his his just his general sort of really you know maybe slightly over enthusiastic insanity. Like you you know he's just crazy. So you can see that in some moments with Joker and then also, you know, the the slow you know um path to insanity for you know the invisible man like he's sort of normal at first but then you just see him and he's over the edge and you know i could i could see that and they, they would be both good influences for you know if you were to create a joker character yeah and uh i even like when when you see him in the first time you see him in the sanatorium when he gets committed to seward sanatorium which by the way Congratulations, Seward Sanatorium. You have taken the title of worst mental institution security from Arkham Asylum because how many times in this film does Renfield escape? <laughs> he shows he shows up in Dr. Seward's house at least twice. Mm-hmm. And it's been told by an orderly he's escaped a couple other times too. <laughs> like, well, people say, people joke that Arkham Asylum got a revolving door. There <laughs> people they made the Batman's rogues can escape whenever they want from there. Look at how easily Renfield just escapes from Seward Sanatorium. <laughs> but what I, I do love, like we were talking, we were just gushing about how his laugh, his creepy laugh. I do love when he's getting a spider taken away from him in his room. And just that look of disappointment. That, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> just that out loud groaning. <laughs> yeah, the genuine disappointment. <laughs> so happy with this thing and it gets taken away. And <laughs> <laughs> so when I first saw this film and saw, I mean, it might have just been like the slick back hair and a little bit of the crazy personality. But I got shades of uh, Crispin Glover watching uh, Dwight Fry's portrayal of Renfield. I'm not saying, um, not saying that um, Crispin Glover's insane or anything. He's a very smart fellow. I've heard him on podcasts before. Um, it reminded me so much of Crispin Glover's portrayal of the remake of Willard that came out in 2003. Yeah. And I ever thought, I always thought that if they ever did a remake of Dracula that Crispin Glover would make a perfect Renfield. But when I sit and watch Dwight Fry's face now, I get lots of shades of Jim Carrey. 
mm. watching him because Jim Carrey is very animated with his facial expressions. Absolutely is. Yeah. I could see if you if you reined in Jim Carrey because he can be kind of goofy. Um, Rein him in and and let him be the animated like that. It the, that would be pretty amazing, I think. Well, if you watch him in like some of his stuff he did on living on on in Living Color, or we talk about in the Grinch episode, um, and I've heard other people say about Grinch too, like how Jim worked that makeup to his advantage. Hmm. Um. But I, I see some of that in Dwight Fries Renfield, how big his eyes get or how big that smile gets on his face. Yeah. It just fits. And then when he's sad, it just, the whole face like, oh, like his, <laughs> or when he's afraid of the man, of Dracula coming after him and all that stuff. It's Dwight Fried knocked us out of the park. I do feel kind of bad that he got um, typecast for this because he's, He's so good in this role. Like I, I enjoy him as Fritz and Frankenstein. I enjoy him in Bride of Frankenstein or the voiceover work you hear him in Invisible Man. Mm. And he unfortunately he died fairly young. Um much like a couple, a few actors in this era did. Um died quite young. But um it'd be nice to see him like get more uh, do more with his life, like break out of that typecast. Like, yeah, I can do these crazy characters, but I can, I can do something serious too. It's like when Jim Carrey tried to break out of doing comedy to do more serious stuff. Or, mm-hmm. no. yeah, it, it's really you know, like they, it, it, it does make me sad for these actors who, you know, they they do so well with with one specific character, and then they just they get cemented into that same character. You know, I, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, I'm sure they they enjoyed playing the character. You know, I'm sure no matter what. But it's just, you know, it's sad because I'm, I'm sure as an actor you'd want to explore different things and and do different kinds of roles. So you're not always that predictable actor. I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next film when we talk about Colin Clive as Doctor Frankenstein too. Hmm. Another actor who unfortunately passed away very young, and uh, I, don't, I don't think it was very long after *Bride of Frankenstein* actually when he passed away. But um, so, anything, anything else you want to discuss uh, on *Dracula* before we move on to our next segment? No, I think we've we've covered quite a bit of *Dracula* and and very much shared our our enjoyment and love of the film. Well, um, I got one more thing. Um, I, I'm intrigued about your thoughts of this. Uh, I would say this film, really, really only downfall of this film is the rushed third act. I think the climax of this film is very rushed. From Dracula taking Mina out of her room to rushing back to his castle with with Renfield and John and... Van Helsing, close. Him killing Renfield. Van Helsing killing Dracula. And then Mina being cured. Like, it just rushes all so fast. I think that would be the only 
downfall, I think, to this film is just that, that those the climax of this film is just so quick. Yeah, I I would I would agree on that. Where, you know, in the in the it, so much of the film is is, you know, building that tension, building the suspense. You know, you're you're feeling it. You're not really sure what you're gonna get yourself into, and then. You know, it builds. You know, you get into the story, and the, you know, get to know the characters and all that. And then, yeah, that that last act is very much just. Oh, we we should probably end this film at some point. So, okay, let's just do this and this and this and this and this and done. <laughs> it it is it is very rushed. Um, you know, it, it's yeah, it, it kind of. Okay, we need to wrap this up, so let's let's get to the end already. And uh, but you know, it, it it is what it is, and and you know, it doesn't you know it doesn't discourage me from from you know liking the movie or anything like that. I, th- I still think it's a pretty you know damn good film. So yeah, it it is a little rushed, but you know, like I said, it is what it is, and you know. Um, no, can't say much more about that. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I, I do agree to that point. Like it, uh, like there's other things I kind of like, nitpick about, it, like some of the dialogue between the characters. It seems like there, it's like two separate recorded segments. Like if you see one person talking, and it's like they just did another recording of somebody else talking, like not in the same room. That yeah. I that I can get that that I can forgive. Um, mm-hmm. But just the, the the climax seems so rushed. And when I watched the horror of Dracula. That one, in a way, too, has a little bit of a, a rushed climax, but you know, it's a lot more action-packed. You got a carriage race between Dracula, Van Helsing, and Michael Goff's character. So mm-hmm. Dracula, they, um, Peter Cushing's Van Helsing puts a, a cross in uh, Dracula's coffin so he cannot rest in it, so he has to rush back to his castle before sunrise. So... You got Dracula on one carriage, and then uh, Van Helsing on another one. They're just rushing back to the castle, mm-hmm. and then into the into the castle. There, uh, Van Helsing and Dracula get into like a physical fight, like a like, physical fisticuffs. It looks like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing are doing their own stunts in this, or maybe very good stunt doubles, to the point where they're wrestling, and it's Van Helsing essentially dragging Christopher Lee into the sunlight. And watching Christopher Lee just turn into dust. Mm-hmm. So why it does end a little quick, just like this one does, it is a little more action packed. Yeah. So, uh, anything else? No, I'm I'm good. <laughs> right. I so, I thoroughly enjoy this film, and um, you know I I definitely. I got to give it a rewatch sometime because it's it's really really good. Uh, where does it rank on your? Uh, if you had to rank all the monster films, where does this rank for you? Oh boy, uh, it would be number two on my list, I think. Yeah, number one, Invisible Man. Number two, Dracula. Three Bride of Frankenstein, four Frankenstein, and 
five. Uh, uh, damn. Uh, I'll just put Wolfman there. I have to rearrange a little more, but but that that's basically where things are at. <laughs> it, it's a solid number three for me. Um, yeah. It was a close. It was a close second for a long time, but I've grown a little more affinity for uh, the Invisible Man mm-hmm. as time has gone on, multiple viewings. But I'll mention what my uh, number one is later when it comes to Universal horror films. But um, so instead of doing the usual roundtable we do, I did prepare a couple questions to generate some discussion on these films. So I wrote like three three questions for each film. Mm-hmm. So the first one, Melissa. Did this film add something to the mythology of Dracula or vampires in general that you weren't aware of beforehand? Um, not really. Um, I mean, it was a it, you know a very basic, uh, you know, Dracula, somebody who you know is easily, you know, can can charm somebody and control them and, um. You know, yeah, there there wasn't really anything that that added to it. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think so. Um, nothing nothing glaringly obvious, anyway. Well, excuse me, I didn't know I was podcasting with a vampire expert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh. I actually learned something about vampires I never knew before watching this film. Oh, yeah. And that was that Dracula has to lay in the earth of his homeland. Mm-hmm. I, I knew nothing about vampires having to do that before seeing this film. Yeah. Because, like, you don't, you, you notice you don't get garlic in this film. It's Wolfbane. Yeah. yeah. Um, the mirrors play a part in this which i do love that that effect of him his reflection not showing up in the mirror of the cigar or the cigarette box that's so cool mm-hmm. and how van helsing is able to pick up on that but you think a common a common concept misconception of vampires is they have to be invited in yeah um i watched i saw let me in years ago when it came out with chloe grace moretz and i can't remember the the American actor, but the other, the male actor, but uh, it's a remake of the 2008 Swedish film, Let the Right One In, which is a story about a little girl who's a vampire. And they play very heavily on the vampire has to be invited in rule. And while I was watching that for the first time recently for this episode, um, the little boy asks her, what happens if I don't invite you in? Just come in. So she just walks in and she just starts bleeding. Hmm. everywhere like i've never seen that before because the first conception of a vampire has to be invited in for me i had to say came from the lost boys mm-hmm. so then when the frog brothers say it like a uh, vampires have to be invited into your house yeah you notice in this film dracula does not get invited in no and i believe he's not invited in in the uh hammer film either but to say it, the Hammer Dracula with Christopher Lee is the first one to feature fangs, uh, the red eyes. I think the red eyes are probably mentioned briefly in this film, but like the first time we see Dracula with red eye contacts, 
And they also said this like the Hammer film was the first one to like have the pre-made stakes ready mm-hmm. to go. And they also and that's when they also like the the sex appeal of Dracula a little bit too comes in with this too. But like yeah, when I was watching this, like like yeah, I never knew anything about vampires having to lay in their soil. Mm-hmm. So I found that interesting. Now Nosferatu did the same thing too. He brought coffins of uh dirt from transylvania with him uh christopher lee's uh dracula did the same thing too mm-hmm. so he learned something new with vampires and they, they i don't know if, i think they introduced garlic in the hammer films too yeah and yeah it's funny that um it's in the darren shan series that they 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 laughed at the the garlic thing that they, they it was something that that didn't affect them at all. <laughs> they, 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 touch like, on a, <laughs> they touch on it in the Lost Boys too. The Lost Boys that yeah. say garlic doesn't work. Yeah, it's sort of your 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 common myth between with um, vampires. <laughs> so, uh, next question: Another vampire media. If his existence is not specifically stated, are the said vampires in that universe descendants of Dracula? I mean, yes and no, but I would I would say more no if it, if they don't say that he, that you know they they are. I mean, they could be their own, um, you know, their own entity, their own, you know, their their um. Their their own vampire, I guess, because um, I I don't think they they would necessarily have to be, you know, a descendant or connected in any way to Dracula. Um, you know, they they could have, you know, sort of evolved on their own. Um, I mean, maybe they are. Maybe they they all sort of are connected in their own way. But yeah, I don't I don't think. Um, like unless they they do say that, you know, oh yes, they are they're you know they they are descendant and connected to to Dracula, then I would say probably not. The only film I can remember Dracula being specifically being like the alpha, like everybody being a direct descendant of him is Blade Trinity, the third Blade film. In that film, uh, Dracula is played by uh, Dominic Purcell. Uh, mm-hmm. Some some will know him from Prison Break. Some will know him from uh, I know him from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. It's Firestorm. No, not Firestorm. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, what is this character's name? Heatwave. Heatwave. So seeing Dracula in that modern time frame. For one, for starters, and then um, part of the team that uh, Blade is working with is developing a cure for vampirism, and they have to if they stick it in Dracula, it will get rid of all the vampires everywhere. Hmm. So I'm not, and I'm not saying that this isn't specifically stated as fact um, that the Dracula is the main descendant in every vampire media. I'm 
it's only one I can think of that I know. Okay, well, if we stick this cure for vampirism in Dracula, it's going to get rid of every vampire. Mm. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I don't know. Like, so I think back on uh, Tim Burton's remake of Dark Shadows. I don't remember Dracula being mentioned at all. Nope. Not at all. They were just like, yeah, they, they, he was not mentioned at all. They were just their own. Um, they existed on their own, sort of, I guess, without, without the connection of Dracula. Uh, moving on, last question. Has the legacy of Dracula superseded Vlad the Impaler? Yes. <laughs> I think so. How so? I think... I mean, I know more about... Like, I've heard more, learned more about Dracula than I have Vlad. So, I would say he's... Like, Dracula's a little more out there than... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What do, what do you what do you think? Well, I think I think it's really become more common knowledge. Uh, first of all, I do agree. I think the legacy of Dracula has far superseded um, Vlad the Impaler. Which, for those who don't know, Count Dracula is very, very loosely based off of Vlad the Impaler. Like, it's a stretch. Mm. He is inspiration for the character, but I think it's really become common knowledge. Like, yeah, you know, Dracula is based off a real dude, right? Like, well, kind of. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He was inspired by a real dude. Like, based off of and inspired are like two different things. Absolutely. Like, you can you can get inspired. You can pull things, pull ideas, whatever from something, but. Yeah, it's it's not completely that that real person. No, I I can't see that. And I I think Dracula is definitely, you know, pole vaulted over <laughs> Vlad the Impaler absolutely and become his own his own character, you know, his his own um, entity. Yeah, we're we're not getting any Vlad the Impaler miniseries anytime soon or feature length films, but um. Oh. I'm sure there's some stuff out there. I remember seeing a documentary on vampires long ago and like saying, like, well, there was this, this queen woman that used to like bathe in blood and all that stuff. And Vlad the Impaler was mentioned in it. But um, yeah, but I really think it has superseded. Like Dracula is a household name. If you don't know who Vlad the Impaler is, if you don't any of that stuff, like people know who Dracula is. Mm-hmm. And when we say when we say based off of and inspired by it, it makes me think of the Mitch Hedberg joke. Um, he goes. I saw a movie that says based on a true story. Well, like, there's a difference between like, I. I'm butchering the Joker now. It was based on inspired by. Like, it says inspired by a true story. So maybe the shit didn't happen. <laughs> hey, Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Did you see that story about the woman that had no arms? Yes, I did, and that inspired me to write a movie about a gorilla. <laughs> 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 yeah, and that's a that's how you end a discussion on Dracula. You bring up a Mitch Hedberg joke. 
<laughs> Bella and Mitch would both be proud. Rest in peace, both of you. <laughs> but that was 1931's Dracula. So now I'm going to hand over to Melissa to introduce 1931's Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, Frankenstein was uh, directed by James Whale, and it was released uh, November 21st, 1931. And the movie is about an obsessed scientist who creates a living being from body parts and not realizing that it has an abnormal brain. So he kind of doesn't realize until after that, oh, (laughs) the the brain that he asked for isn't the right one that he put into the creature. Um, so anyway, the the film stars uh, Boris Karloff as the creature, Colin Clive as Victor Frankenstein, Dwight Fry as Fritz, Mae Clark as Elizabeth Lavenza, and Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman. And there's obviously many more. Um, so what are your thoughts on this film? <laughs> <laughs> The first time I saw it, my first time I saw it, initial thoughts. Yeah, what are you, what are your what? When were you first? I should have reworded that a little bit differently. Um, when you when was your? You first can't have an onion. <laughs> um, when was your first introduction to to Frankenstein, and what are your thoughts on it? It was very close to the same time I watched Dracula for the first time. And I guess if we're talking about first introductions to these characters, I have to go even farther back to when I was a kid. Uh, we had this local, we have a local pizza chain here in Iowa called happy Joe's. And I remember going there in uh, like October when I was really young and they had the universal monster, like cards, like trading cards almost. I remember having the Wolfman one for sure, but I can't remember if I had any other ones. But it was like a baseball card with the Universal Monsters. So that was my, actually my initial, like, my first introduction to the Universal Monsters. And not even at that time, in the mid to early 90s, not even thinking these characters were that, or these films were that old, really. Mm-hmm. But the um, first time I saw Frankenstein was around the same time I saw Dracula. I was getting into all these films. And, of course, I've seen Frankenstein in numerous iterations before, or the, the monster. Um being portrayed several times before. So Frankenstein and the monster were something that had been in my brain, in my zeitgeist for a long time, but I didn't see the film till around the same time I saw Dracula. And uh, when we get to the questions at the end of this film, I have one particular initial reaction I want to share with it. And, um, but I just remember loving this one too. I don't love this one as much as Dracula or the invisible man. Mm-hmm. But I still really do enjoy it. And I think a lot of it has to boil down to a lot of people are going to more likely say Boris Karloff's portrayal of the creature. But I latch on more to Colin Clive's portrayal of Dr. Henry Frankenstein. So I just love this um, portrayal of a a doctor gone mad. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I I just love this one as much, and it for coming out the same year as Frank, as Dracula. This one seems like it flows a little more. It flows like a film, like how we just mentioned in Dracula. How it, it seems like a play. How this part is this part is happening now. This is happening now. This is happening now. 
this is happening now. Like it's an axe. This mm-hmm. one, while while it still seems like it has an act format structure to it, it flows more like a film would. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it does. It 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 has the structure of a, of a film, but it has such good flow about it, and it yeah, it's it's definitely not um, so just oh this ends and goes to the next thing like Dracula is. Um, yeah, it's more, yeah, it's, it's definitely more fluid in its storytelling, which, which is interesting. So when was the first time you saw it and what were your initial reactions? Uh, I actually, (laughs) I saw it for the first time, um, I think in uh, 2019. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. That that was actually the the first time I had had seen the film, and uh, my first Frankenstein movie that I had seen uh, ever. Uh, was young Frankenstein. <laughs> that, I saw that. At, I saw that at a very young age. Yeah, that that was when I was sort of introduced to like, you know, like Mel Brooks films and you know, you know like Monty Python and all that sort of quirky comedy stuff. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until 2019 <laughs> that I. Uh, I finally I watched uh, Frankenstein. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know how I I didn't see it earlier as I had seen you know Invisible Man and and Dracula and so it was kind of funny that I I hadn't seen it. Um, but yeah, I I saw it and I I really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, it's I do like Bride of Frankenstein more than Frankenstein. Um, but I still enjoy Frankenstein for what it is. I think it's a, you know, um, it, it's a fun film. It definitely has a better flow than, than Dracula, just in its storytelling and its transitions to different things. And, um, yeah, it's, it's also, you know, it's, it's a, I was, I was thinking about this as I was watching it, that it's, it's a bit of a, a dark darker story obviously like him you know um creating life from different body parts and things like that and just um you know frankenstein itself like just looking at at life and everything like that um but it's almost it it almost feels like this film was sort of done in a little bit of a light-hearted way but then there was also that balance of that that darker tone um, you know, especially when, you know, the, the, the monster is out and he throws a little girl into a pond like that, <laughs> you know, um, that obviously is hardly, you know, lighthearted and fun. Like it's, it's kind of starts out that way where it's just completely innocent and everything. And then it just kind of takes that turn. Um, but Ooh. yeah, I, I think it's. 
yeah, I, I really enjoy the film. I, I think it's a very well done movie. Well, do you, let me ask you this: Do you think you lean more towards Bride of Frankenstein because it seems like Young Frankenstein takes maybe just it takes a lot from Frankenstein, but it takes just as much from from uh, Bride of Frankenstein as it does. So maybe you were more. Maybe you had Bride Frankenstein in your zeitgeist a little more. Maybe. Going into it? Maybe. I, I could see that. I definitely um you know, I, I kind of wish that I haven't I hadn't seen Young Frankenstein so much because honestly I can quote that movie and I can see the movie in my head. And it especially when watching, you know, Bride of Frankenstein I had that the young Frankenstein playing in, in, in my head, so it tainted it just a little bit, where you can't really take it seriously, because you just... I, I'm seeing the film, and the lines and everything, and the scenes, um, but, you know, I can definitely see where they took from, from Frankenstein as well, and actually, a lot of the, the, the props and um, items used in Frankenstein were used in young Frankenstein, I can see so, that. Yeah. Well, so, well we, how about we use this point as a transition into talk about like favorite scenes. Um, me and you were talking off mic about, cause I texted you last night mm-hmm. of the scene when Fritz is taking the brain out of the college and I go watch when he grabs the normal brain, he takes the lid off of it before he drops it. And then when he grabs the abnormal brain, he doesn't take the lid off, which we all we both agree it was a, a strange detail to put in the film. Yeah. But but we talk about that scene in general of Fritz grabbing the brain. Some random gong goes off, and he just drops the jar <laughs> in the middle of of the room. <laughs> and I so yeah, I, I think and this might be partner to our friends at Pods and Monsters. How that just. That scene just makes me laugh my ass off every time now because it's so random that he just drops the jar. Like uh, You'd expect something, some kind of mishap to happen, that he's going to grab the wrong brain. But him just dropping it in the jar, shattering all over the floor because something startled him. It's almost like Mel Brooks went back in time to 1930 to write that, so it'd be in 1931. Uh, it's absolutely. Almost, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like Frankenstein was parroting young Frankenstein. Oh, almost, yeah. Like it, it um, yeah. It, it, but it, it gives that explanation in such a funny way of why he had to. He went with the other brain. And I mean, he doesn't even look at the label on the jar. He just grabs it and he leaves. <laughs> but, you know, it, it sets him up that he's very, like, you know, keeping an eye out for things. Like, because obviously he's not supposed to be there. He recognizes that. And so he hears the noise and he's like, ah! and drops <laughs> the thing. And <laughs> that honestly has got to be one of my favorite scenes because it's just. It's so simple in explaining how he gets the other brain, but it's just done in such a 
a genuinely funny way. And it's so natural, too. Like, he's, okay, he's keeping an eye out, whatever, and uh, drops it, and grabs the other one leaves. Like, it's just, it couldn't have been done any more perfect. I, I That's thousand percent one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> that is a good one. I rewatched it again the other night. I he he doesn't even make a noise. He just looks up and drops it. Yeah. <laughs> just stops dead in his tracks, drops the brain. <laughs> yeah, but it it is funny that you know he he takes the lid off almost like he's gonna put the brain in something else. When it's right there, you're fine. You could have just taken it and gone, but nope. Yeah, and <laughs> somehow in my mind, before this scene stuck out in my head, I, I thought, because he bumps into the skeleton, too. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, like, hard not to think of Marty Feldman in this scene. Exactly. Because <laughs> 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 I thought maybe, cause maybe like, maybe I, I thought in my mind, okay, maybe he bumps into the skeleton and drops the brain. That's how he does it. But no, it's just... A random noise goes off. He stops in his tracks, drops the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I props to James Whale for, I guess, putting something in something in this. Like, this is really, really only the lighthearted scene in the whole film, actually. Like, yeah. And we're going to talk about this scene later on when we get to the questions with the scene with the monster and the little girl. But it starts off like very cute and cheery when you see him enjoying his time throwing the flowers into the water with the little girl. So you get, I guess you get to get these sprinkles of lighter moments. Otherwise the rest of the film is dark. Like the film opens with Dr. Frankenstein and Fritz at a funeral, getting ready to rob the, the grave. Once the grave digger leaves, mm-hmm. makes you wonder how long they were standing there waiting for that guy to fill in that hole. Right. <laughs> it's it, it really, you know, makes you think, and it's just they're they're fully committed to doing what they're gonna do <laughs> when they're there at the funeral, and then they're also waiting for the guy to fill in the hole, and and then wait for him, and then even wait for him to walk away <laughs> and get a far enough distance for them to be like, okay, it's safe, and we can come out and dig up the body. <laughs> and like, how long were they there? And like. Exactly. They, were only like, they were only like 10 feet away from him, too, the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I find it funny, too, that he says, you know, get down, you fool. Like, <laughs> he says, he doesn't really whisper it. So how do you not hear him say this? <laughs> I don't know. Like, nobody, nobody, nobody standing in the back of the funeral heard him say that, get down, you fool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would think think somebody here but it's that classic movie thing right where you know you're doing something and oh suddenly nobody sees anything suddenly they're just turning a blind eye to whatever's going on and not paying attention whatsoever so i I think it's just one of those things where he 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 says it and you know you would think you know in a real world somebody would probably hear and be like what (laughs) you know or you know react to it and so it's just one of those things that, yeah. <laughs> I think it was the trope when you ever see you ever see a funeral in a film, and you get the whole the whole mass of people are, are by the gravesite, and then 
the trope of like somebody somebody ominous standing like so far away, half across the cemetery. <laughs> like they, I think people they they start calling that out in films. Like somebody looks across and sees that random person standing by himself. Like what the hell's going on here? <laughs> like nobody saw these two guys. One with a one with a hunchback, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Duck down behind a headstone or outside the cemetery, like. <laughs> but yeah. Oh well, but um, <laughs> I also do love the I love the 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 uh, scene of them bringing the monster to life finally. Mm-hmm. And I just love. I mentioned earlier. I love Colin Clive's portrayal of Doctor Frank, Doctor Henry Frankenstein. Which is when we were uh, researching these ep- for this episode, I asked Melissa, who read a couple of chapters of the book, I go, well, is it Victor or Henry in the book? And you said it was Victor, correct? Yes. So it just baffled my mind. Like, why Why is he Henry in this movie? Why is he Henry? And when I watched uh, Victor Frankenstein starring James McAvoy and Dana Ratcliffe, James McAvoy is Victor Frankenstein, but he had a brother named Henry Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But that did not answer my question. So while I was doing research, I looked on IMDb for the film Frankenstein, and I guess Victor was renamed Henry because it was decided that Victor would sound too severe and unfriendly. Interesting. I mean, I could I could see that it, Henry's a little bit more. Um, warm, I guess, it has has a sense of of comfort and and warmth to it than than Victor does. And I probably didn't write the whole fact down, but I think it was for that time. So for that mm-hmm. time frame, Victor sounded uh, very severe and unfriendly. Yeah, but I I still never found where Fritz came from because like it seems like anything else after this, it's Igor. Yeah, I, he or, was or or Igor. <laughs> it's pronounced Igor, <laughs> but yeah, and it's actually interesting that um, in the book, it's um, there. There's no um, um, like Igor or Igor or Fritz or like there's there's no lab assistant. It's just him on his own, um, wanting to 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 do this and um you know creating the creature and bringing it to life and he doesn't even um in the film they they made they gave him you know the the lab assistant and then they also they made him they gave him the title of doctor that this is who he is he's he's like a medical doctor and he's driven to to you know make up make a body and reanimate it to life and um because otherwise he's just a um, he I think he, he was just kind of a um, like sort of plain Jane sort of scientist who did experiments and things but not really you know nothing sort of medical about him so they they gave that to him in the films which I, which I think kind of makes sense in a way but uh, as I was saying I, I'd love. Colin Clive's portrayal mm. of Henry 
and especially in that creation scene, because one of my favorite lines is, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. And just, <laughs> in my mind, one of the greatest horror film scenes of all time. And that that phrase, it's a lot, like we mentioned with Dracula, how Children of the Night or I Never Drink Wine are some of the like, most uh, well-known lines of all ever from Dracula. But you you have to admit that it's alive. It's alive. Um, it's probably the most well known line from this entire film. Absolutely, I I, I would think that it, it definitely is the, is the most well known. And but it's such an iconic sort of maybe not iconic but classic scene because it's just he's he's been successful in in bringing this to life. Like he, you know. He pieced everything together, and it seemed to work. And <laughs> it, it might not have been maybe exactly what he he might have imagined in the sense of you know putting in the the you know the abnormal brain and things like that. But it still it the creature is alive, and what uh, what an exhilarating feeling, right? And you definitely yeah. see that in him. Like it's just, it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> In the name of God, now I know what it's like to feed God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I didn't get to mention it. I didn't I didn't mention it when we we're talking about Dracula, but I'm starting to dabble my toe in the acting thing with doing this play that I was working on last year before the pandemic hit. And two if, and I've like made a list in my mind, like if five characters, if I got an offered a role in a play about those, about these properties, I would want to play them. One of them was Renfield. If I ever got a chance to play Renfield, I want to do it. Mm. And if I, was, if I was offered a chance to play Dr. Frankenstein, I would say if I can do it as Colin Clive's Dr. Frankenstein, I'm in. Mm. Every time I think of Dr. Frankenstein, I don't think, I don't think of Peter Cushing, which I did see a hammer. I saw Frankenstein and the monster from hell, which was the last Frankenstein film that hammer produced. And I enjoyed that. And he did a very good Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein. Um, I don't think Gene Wilder as Frankenstein later Frankenstein. I don't think I sure can't think of any other ones on top of my head that played Dr. Frankenstein. I, but uh, when I think Dr. Frankenstein, I think Colin Clive. And mm-hmm. like we mentioned earlier, it's tragic that he passed away just, what, two years after Brian Frankenstein came out. I think he was only, like, in his late 30s, too. Wow. That's really young. Uh, I think he had a drinking problem. We We mentioned, like, some of these... These guys just had some of these actors had just had such uh, rough lives back then, or such uh, some demons back then, and mm-hmm. yeah, he was a. Uh, it's uh, it's very shame, and I, I and yeah, I heard it said on our friend Robert Anthony's podcast, Pods of Monsters, that uh, he wasn't too keen on the role of Frankenstein either, and like he almost had to be bribed to come back. Like I think he took this role because I mean he. Because it was alleged Dr. Frankenstein dies at the end of this film. But yeah. they rewrote it that, that he survives. 
So I think he came back for Bride of if I'm not mistaken, he came back for Bride of Frankenstein as long as they killed killed Frankenstein in that film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like in the in the story, um, the the monster um, or the, the creature turns on on his creator and and ends up killing him. So yeah, they they obviously they they change that, but. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate that he he wasn't really into that that role when he honestly does it really well. I get, the "It's Alive" line alone is iconic. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen Frankenstein, you know that where "It's Alive" came from. Mm-hmm. But um, well, speaking of the, how the monster turns on him. On his creator, let's talk about Boris Karloff as the monster. Without a doubt, probably the most sympathetic monster of all time. Absolutely. From the moment he's unveiled, you just feel so... Because it starts... You don't get much of him right away, but then when you see like Fritz torturing him with the torch and... All this other stuff, and Frank, Doctor, and Henry. Henry's not as bad as Fritz is to him, but but then you see how um, when he escapes, he makes out into the villa. he eventually kills Fritz, mm-hmm. and uh, when he makes his escape, you see just how harsh the world is to him. And he, he I've mentioned a numerous podcasts before. I love. When naive naivety, when people are when characters are naive and it's genuine, I love it so much more when it is genuine. You can tell, and mm-hmm. Karloff's monster is so genuinely naive. Yeah, it, it melts your heart to see all these bad things happening, and it gets even more so in Bride of Frankenstein. Like it breaks your it breaks your heart even more in Bride of Frankenstein than it does in this film. But we mentioned earlier how. So happy he is to be throwing the flower. The little girl's not scared of him. Mm -hmm. Just how happy he is, like tossing the flowers in, or when he does the deed of throwing her in. That 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 look of like, oh shit, what did I just do? And then he just runs off. Yeah. Or or even his reaction of when he's getting chased by the villagers and everything is. All that stuff, and uh, if we ever do a, if we ever do an episode on Bride of Frankenstein, I could probably talk more about how Boris Karloff just does so well at making this. It's got to be part of James Whale too directing. You just feel so bad. This is a, this is a monster that did not ask to be created. No. So he's living in an existence he did not ask for, no. and the and the world is not treating him kindly at all. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's the one monster you genuinely you feel so sorry for. Like he's he he's like you almost seem like he's sort of like maybe not so much trying to learn, but just like exploring his surroundings and what's going on, and and you know, because he has kind of no idea. He's just been. He has this life, and it's okay now. What do I do with it? And you know, he yeah, it's 
it's done so damn genuinely. It's just oh, you you, and that's what makes you really feel for him because it is so genuine. And he's, you know, I think if he if maybe if he was in a different environment, he would be, you know, like if they actually, you know, taught him things and you know he could he could be genuinely good and because you kind of see that like with with the little girl like he you know he's so happy to be like looking at the flowers and you know throwing them and just interacting with the little girl and also realizing that well she isn't scared of him at all like she's totally okay with him and so he he probably feels that sense of acceptance that he's just he's not some big weirdo (laughs) and but then you, he naively, you know, throws her into the pond, which is done so without any malicious intent. He just, oh, flower floats, will does she, you know, like it, he's trying to put those pieces together, right? And of course that doesn't end well and he quickly realizes like, oh my god, and he just kind of shuts down a little bit and just goes away. Like he recognizes what he did, it was not good, and he just, you know, goes away from it, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. You really feel for him. Very, it's, it's done, like I said, it's done so believably well, it's not like, I hate when they try to force sympathy onto a character. Because mm-hmm. it's going to make me care even less about that character. Absolutely. But this does it so well. Like he, it's like this. This thing is treated. He's treated so poorly. And going back to how you said how the girl accepts him, it reminds me of that meme that's been going around a lot lately. Uh, it's two children hugging. I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something like racism, racism, or racism. You can also translate it to acceptance and hate, hate, racism, all this evil stuff. It's not. It's taught. It's we're not, it's not born into us. It's taught. So you see how genuinely accepting this child is of this. Well, I think Boris Karloff was what a five ten, five eleven maybe. Yeah. So he's probably close to probably, probably close to six foot tall, over six foot tall in this film. So you see this little girl just be so accepting of this giant monster, mm-hmm. and not not batting an eye at it, like. Hey, do you want to play with? Do you want to be my friend? Do you want to play with me? Mm-hmm. And that—that's so genuine too of children. Like they—they they don't, they don't care what you you look like, what what skin color you are, what you know. Maybe if you're in a wheelchair, like it doesn't matter with children. And that's a perfect, you know, sort of representation of a of a child and the child's innocence and the child just. I'm just going to accept you for who you are and we're going to interact and we're going to, you know, have fun with these flowers and and that's what we're going to do. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me that you, you know, look different when she probably didn't even think about it for even half a second. And, and they play up at the, you flash forward to 1987 with monster squad. They play up that sympathy card with the monster too mm-hmm. and how uh Sean's sister immediately latches on to him and 
and they play that sympathy card with him with that Frankenstein monster when he sees himself on that Halloween mask and he goes scary and points to himself. Yeah. That's and they I think the movie takes a moment to like let that sink in, like this poor creature. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He he's definitely Frank the the creature is definitely one that you you feel so much for. You, you I I honestly I just you know, I I wanna give him a hug so bad. Like <laughs> I really do. We'll talk in our next episode, too, about a, 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 well, maybe at least for me, uh, another creature I kind of feel bad for, or a character I feel bad for with Larry Talbot. But um, but touching back on Colin Clive real quick again, on Doctor, on more so the character of Dr. Frankenstein in general, is uh, my friend Mike and I have been having this discussion about like recent events in the news, which we're not going to get into right now. Um, but we talk about very intelligent people and Mikey made the point that, uh, sometimes with that level of intelligence comes a little bit of insanity mm-hmm. and what better portrayal of that than Dr. Frankenstein himself. And like, and so many different incarnations of Dr. Frankenstein I've seen, you see that brilliant mind, but you see that insane part. And what I've noticed with Peter Cushing and Colin Clive is it's not quite ramped up to like an 11. Like you could see that he's not quite there. He's very smart, but he's got that little, because you, to do something like this, to create something to defy God and make a creature out of living body parts and bring it back to the life, a defiance of God, you have to be a very smart to do it, very intelligent to do it and very insane at the same time. Absolutely. But when I watched uh, that Victor Frankenstein with uh, James McAvoy's Dr. Frankenstein, they really play up the, the fact that he's not all there. He's very intelligent, but they play up a little more that he's not there. Like, they don't play him like a cartoon character. Like, a, like imagine uh, how you'd admit, imagine, like, an insane asylum character would be in a car- portrayed in a cartoon. They don't play into that quite that level, but they they do show that he's not quite he's he's very intelligent, but he's still not really playing with a full deck. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, and while we're on the subject of uh, Doctor Frankenstein and like how we mentioned that that little bit of humor with Fritz dropping the brain when I was watching the horror no. When I was watching Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, this one takes place in a mental institution where Dr. Frankenstein has been committed to. And another doctor who's been studying his works also gets committed to him, that same hospital. Frankenstein fakes his death, goes under another name. I believe it's uh, Dr. Victor he goes by now. But in the previous, previous film, he is burned, so he cannot operate with his hands. So... Um, Instead of having this, his normal female assistant Sarah help him, he decides to have have this the other the the doctor that got committed to do the surgery for him. And there's this random scene where they're doing the brain switch, and they take the brain. And this monster is made out of uh, body parts from mental patients in this asylum. 
And uh, so they take the brain of a very, very intelligent professor that was committed there. And they take the, the other brain out. And they set the brain in a bowl on the floor for some reason. And they just have this scene where Peter Cushing's Dr. Frankenstein steps on the brain. <laughs> and I just started laughing. <laughs> Which, by the way, Melissa, you, you're going to get a kick out of this. Mm-hmm. So the Hammer, the Hammer films, have that, they're filmed in Britain, so they have that Star Wars tie-in with Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, Christopher Lee as Count Doku. Mm-hmm. But what if I told you that there's an, another Star Wars connection? Oh, and Lord. the guy who played the monster and Frankenstein, the monster from hell in the film before that one. What would you say if I told you that monster was played by David Prowse? Does that name ring any bells? Yes. And yes, I... the actor who played the monster in the hammer horror film I saw was the in the in suit actor for Darth Vader. I think did I know this that he he had done something like that at some point? I think I might have known that, but still, it's <laughs> when I was watching that film last week and I did the research, I was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> <laughs> and rest in peace, David Prowse, right? Yeah, who just passed away last year. Rest in peace. Yes. I thought that was a very fun fact, and he also <laughs> does play the sympath- the sympathetic role for the creature as well. Mm. Where it's more that I didn't, ask, he's like I didn't ask to be created for this. I didn't ask to be created. I didn't ask to be brought to life. Like, so it puts at that sympathy angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's Frank, the the creature. Keep calling him Frankenstein. Um, is such a he's a he's a vulnerable, naive, you know, is such an innocent character, and he, yeah, <laughs> he, he's he's an interesting interesting creature, and I, and and I can see why so much of of the story is very much you know, philosophical and, you know, looking at life and creation and, you know, suddenly having this life and, you know, sort of what it's, what it's meaning is. And yeah, I can, I can definitely see that, you know, you just, you know, you'd be, you'd be probably wondering that too, if you were this (laughs) suddenly patched up from different things and, you know, (laughs) You're, you're, an abom- you're essentially an abomination. Yeah. You, abomination of nature. You're you're somebody who you kind of you you know you're you're really different from everybody else. And yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. Anything else to discuss on Frankenstein before we move on? No, I I think um, I think we've we've definitely covered a lot of of the film and the character. So 
Um, so yeah, as as we did with with Dracula, we have um, we have a, f- a few questions, and that that spark even even more conversations. So the first question is. Um, Imagine you are sitting in a theater in 1931, and you see the monster throw the little girl into the pond. What's your initial reaction? It would honestly be the same reaction I had when I saw it for the first time in, like, 2013. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) How did they get away with doing that in 1931. Like, like that was like the first, like, I'm like, Oh my God. Like how'd they get away with that? In 1931, let alone now you can hardly get away with killing kids in movies. Now, 90 mm-hmm. years later. Exactly. And like, you talk about like, if you could go back and see certain films in the theater, like mm-hmm. some people say jaws, some people say psycho. Some people say like, this would be like either I just want to sit and crowd watch the first time the crowd sees this monster picking up the little girl and throwing it into the lake. Like I just remember like my jaw just dropped when I saw it in 2013. Like, oh my God. Did it just do that? Like, holy shit. Yeah. I I, I was just like baffled and Shocked all at the same time. Yeah. Like bravo. Like I'd be like the shy, I'd be like the Shia LaBeouf gif of him standing up and clapping. <laughs> like <laughs> wow. Like I, I, once the once that initial shock wore off, I'd be like that standing in a play. Wow. Oh my god. That was not for the fact that they killed the kid, but just like the balls to do that, James Whale. <laughs> Absolutely. What would your initial reaction be if you're in that theater in 1931? Horrified, um, you know, I, I, horrified and shocked, and wondering what the hell I just saw. And <laughs> Did they just do that? Exactly. There, <laughs> there would there would be a lot of just sitting there, just wrapping my head around everything and. And I mean, even watching it very recently, it, it's just—it's uh, jaw-dropping. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's such a, a moment, and you know, you you see, you know, like you, you know, you see, you watch movies and stuff with like adults and whatever dying and things and it's like oh whatever you see a kid be thrown and you're like <laughs> wondering what the hell you're you're seeing and yeah i would i would be horrified i'd I, and it, kind of the same reaction i had very recently when i first saw the film too it's such a ballsy thing to do and something you would never ever see now uh, that would you, you would be burned at the stake for that. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> I, rem- it now. <laughs> I, I think the Toxic Avenger catches a lot of shit because there's a scene in that film where the bullies kill a little kid. They run run them over in the with their car, and like you see them like run the 
head over. It's yeah. like holy shit! <laughs> yeah. I don't think it, I. I think the shock is for a different reason than you see it in this film. Hmm. I think so, and and I mean, too. It's it's you. You understand. You you do understand why, because he's. He's so naive and he's learning and you see him putting pieces together and thinking, you know, oh, this, the, like, if you really think about, like, okay, this floats. Well, what if, what happens when I do this? Like, he's he's thinking and he's trying to, to comprehend things. And, and so, like I kind of mentioned, like, it's not done in a, in a malicious way. It's, he, it's just... Like he he's exploring his world and and then you know he you see him realize what he did so it was never of malicious intent and it was never like cold hearted or anything because you he reacts to it so quickly and and realizes what he did and then and knows he did a bad thing so you kind of get it but initially it's like what the hell. <laughs> What the fuck? Dude! <laughs> Pennywise, Pennywise, you fucking liar. They don't all float. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, definitely same reaction then and um, now. And it, and it would be very interesting to be a fly on the wall during that period of time when everybody's seeing this for the first time and... And the reactions, and I'm sure it was shock, <laughs> pure shock. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, any other thoughts on that one? I think we've said all that needs to be said. I think we kept coming back to it as we discussed the film too. Mm-hmm. So, thinking of of you know the the creature and. You know, talking about like acceptance and you know him being different and everything like that, um, but mostly acceptance. In your opinion, has the monster been as embraced by pop culture as now, like po- by pop culture now, as much as vampires or werewolves? Like, is he accepted into that world as much as as the others? I think. Fans of the culture, yes, the Frank the Frankenstein's monster has been accepted, but it seems like we don't see as much Frankenstein or monster material. Like we got Herman with the monsters, we got um, an appearance in Monster Squad, and it's influenced so many other things, which we'll discuss here in another question here. Which well, I, I I will answer in another question here, um, where you like we've mentioned numerous times, young Frankenstein, or even Frankenstein appears in the Hotel Transylvania movies, or so yeah, he has been embraced, and I'm starting to think I'm like, well, I was thinking to myself last night, I'm like, well, we do get a lot of zombies nowadays too, and. What comes to mind for zombies like kickstarting that was white zombie with Bella Lugosi, 
from 1932. Um, Night of the Living Dead from 1968. But when I sit and think about it, I'm like, well, in a way, Frankenstein's monster is kind of like a zombie. In a, in, but hear me out. It is dead tissue that has been brought back to life by unnatural means. So it might be kind of a, a plastic man style stretch to connect those two. But I, I could see how maybe Frankenstein the creature could be kind of an inspiration from for zombies now. Like, and I don't know where that we talk about, like in the Dracula, where like any implicated like mythos of the monster of Dracula came from. You learned from Dracula. I don't know where the stiff-legged walk came from because Boris Karloff does not move like a zombie. He moves pretty freely in these films mm-hmm. as the monster. So I don't know where this whole stiff walking thing comes from. So I could say, well, you see zombies walk in a film a certain way. Mm-hmm. And you could probably say that, like the mummy has an influence on, on zombies too, but just a thought that came in my head, like maybe he, he uh, the monster has been just embraced. Like we have Frankenberry cereal as well, too. That still we get every October that I buy once in September and I hold on to it until it's two years past stale. <laughs> but um, yeah, but I think the monster has been just embraced, but it's like we just see him as much as we used to. We don't we don't see him as much as vampires or werewolves. It seems. But I think he does have his place in pop culture. Like he's been embraced, but it seems like we don't see him as much represented anymore. Um, but I, if I had that theory about maybe maybe zombies could have a part to play in that too. Yeah, I could see that. Do you think? Um, do you think it's it's easier for you know creators and writers to use vampires and werewolves over like the creature like do you know what i mean like you know you can you can put vampires and things into different situations but i don't feel like you could do that so much with the creature do you think it's just based on that too like is it you know weird to you know put him into a into a different situation i don't know um, this this kind of ties into a question but, we have in the next episode and the other question we still have to answer for this. Mm-hmm. And then, so, and like, so what's what what are your thoughts about the monster being embraced by pop culture? He's been embraced, but I don't feel like he's been embraced as much as vampires and werewolves. He doesn't seem to be sort of the the popular character of of choice to create a story around or retell a story of um i mean there there is a lot of it like i mean there there is quite a bit with with you know like frankenstein and like the creature character and things like that but i find too it's they lean a little towards more towards like dr frankenstein like him more than the creature him himself so they're they're more drawn to that than they are of the creature so then the the creature kind of gets pushed to the back a little bit. Um, I mean, he, he certainly has his place. I mean, he, he really does. And, and 
but um, yeah, I, I don't think he 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 is as embraced. Um, I, I think he's he's a little bit off to the side side a little bit on that one. Okay. Like, that's that's kind of that's kind of my view. Like it doesn't seem like he's really out there, but he he is. Like he he does have a place, but it's just not out there as much as as your your vampire and werewolf. Um, those of us that embrace the horror culture have embraced uh, Frankenstein's monster. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely have. I think we've we've fully fully embraced that character because I think you know we just you, you get to understand the character and you you know enjoy him and um, yeah I, I think we we has certainly have but in in yeah in in general pop culture I don't know I, I don't think so um, yeah. <laughs> So I had kind of mentioned that, you know, putting characters into different situations and, you know, is one easier than the other. And I gently touched on that. And that sort of brings us into the next question and very and the last question. Um, could you modernize Frankenstein and still do it justice? Or... Is it a story that needs to stay in its time period? I absolutely believe it could be done modernized because when I sit and think back of all these popular films that I've watched over the years, even though they're not like direct remakes of Frankenstein, they have that Frankenstein influence to it. So I think of Weird Science from the John Hughes film Weird Science from the 80s, two boys that create a woman out of their computer. Modern for well for the eighties. Um, another big one, probably a film near and dear to both of our hearts, Melissa, is uh, Edward Scissorhands. Yes, very, very much Tim Burton's creation of uh, Frankenstein in a modern setting, mm-hmm. and you very much see the Edward is such the has the sympathetic angle that the creature has, and the, a third film. To prove at the point is uh, another Tim Burton vehicle that's Frankenweenie. Yeah. Uh, both the live action short and the animated feature length one. Um, that one probably the more so I feel because it takes place in the fifties. It's set in black and white, and it's it fits a very modern theme. So it's not it doesn't have to be in the Victorian area setting, um, but it does work as being it, it can work as being a period piece too. Because I watched Victor Frankenstein. On Hulu, if you if anybody's interested in seeing it, and while it focuses more on the relationship between Igor and Victor Frankenstein, you do get some of the monster at the end. Um, you do get another creation that they make. Uh, Victor Frankenstein makes uh, a monster out of animal body parts, and when he brings that to life, that is a thing of nightmares, man. That is nightmare fuel. But um, yeah, I would say that you can have both ways. Like you, you can do your your Frankenstein modernized, but I really think cell phones and like modern technology could really ruin it. Like lose the allure of it. 
Yeah. In a way. But so if with Blumhouse taking over the Dark Universe, I, I'm interested to see what attempt they take at it. But but when I think of films like Edward Scissorhands, Weird Science, which is one of my favorite John Hughes films, uh, or at least ones that base around like his teenage stuff. Uh, Weird Science is probably my favorite one. And then um, and then Frank and Winnie, I think those are three perfect examples of how Frankenstein could be adopted into a modern era mm. and done and done successfully. Absolutely. And I, and I think those were, you know, obviously they were very much done successfully. You know, it, it didn't feel weird and um, yeah, it, it certainly works. And I also think of uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show mm-hmm. uh, having that have that influence. Well, Doctor Frankenfurter being obvious, but yeah. that in Rob, Richard O'Brien when he wrote that, just being a huge fan of like fifties, forties, thirties horror films. Mm-hmm. So Frankenstein's all over that picture too, all over that movie too. So I really think it could be, and that takes place in the seventies or. And a quote unquote error errorless time, much like 1989's Batman film, where you don't know what time it takes place and everybody's driving cars around and all that stuff, but they're wearing suits and dresses and stuff. So it takes place in the, that ageless time where we don't know when it takes place. Yeah. So if you do it, you could probably do something like that where it takes place. Like we know it's modern, but we can't like, pinpoint it at a certain date yeah i agree i i think it, the minute you you place it into a specific time period is the minute it falls apart it, it can't it can't be specific it can yeah and, and that kind of brings me into like my my thing like i think it could be modernized you know i i think it, it could absolutely work very well but again like you you just said like it can't be you know uh it's, it's got to be timeless it, it can't be anything specific um because you know like i just said like it just that's when it falls apart like you make it you know 80s or something and it just that would really fall apart and not work very well i don't think um but you know, I mean, I, I even think of, you know, like the, the with the idea of of reanimating life. I think of Reanimator. I think of Bride of Reanimator. You know, this this idea of of bringing things back to life or piecing things together and bringing it to life. Like there, the influence is there, and you know, I and and that's kind of the, you know, if you think about like. A little more, maybe not modern, but like it's it is a little bit more modernized. But if you were to bring it out of the the time period that it's set in, it could it could certainly work. Um, I think, I think I think it could work very well. It'd be it'd be interesting to to see. <laughs> I kind of want to yeah. see this movie now. <laughs> well, br- br- brilliant, brilliant point. I, I didn't even think of animator uh, or reanimator. So good point there. Good on you. Uh, points. Um, <laughs> it's very, it's very much H.P. Lovecraft's take on Frankenstein. Absolutely. 
you definitely see that that influence there and and it's it's an interesting idea you know that and even the the idea itself could be put into any time period and and that's kind of what it more or less the story is is the idea of of bringing something that's clearly dead back to life and what does that mean for life itself and so I mean it can be in any time period you want it just I think it's it's been so rooted in its in its time period where it is that you know it's it's hard to see it out of that but it could certainly work and it has in many different ways as we've seen in, in Frankenweenie as we've seen in Edward Scissorhands you know Reanimator Bride of Reanimator like all these films have had that Frankenstein influence so it can certainly work if you were to really modernize it absolutely do we have any um do we have any final thoughts on on either uh dracula or frankenstein even if you don't like black and white horror film it seems like the biggest contention nowadays is people think black and white films are boring yeah and i'm sure when i was in my teens i probably thought the same thing but then i started seeing psycho or watching these films or freaks or the man who laughs or nosferatu or just seeing these films like give them a chance like these things are a piece of history oh and by the way fun fact uh frankenstein and dracula and other films are produced in 1931 they enter public domain in, in 2027 so we could set your rights up to this, <laughs> or I even think of I even think of a I even think of Vincent Price films that are in black and white. They're just so damn entertaining. Mm-hmm. Give them a chance, like you would not be disappointed. These, and yeah, you might know where it's alive comes from, or Children of the Night. You might know where it comes from, but see where it comes from. See pure acting, like. We talked a little bit about how in Dracula, how it, it seems like they're recording one person and then just cut back to another person. But when you watch Dracula, it's it's like you're watching a bunch of stage actors just run run the ball in the end zone. Like, yeah, the 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 acting and the story flow seems like it's kind of patched together in Dracula, but it's just there's not a bad performance in the whole film. There's not a whole there's not a bad performance. In Frankenstein, either these are iconic um, portrayals, and these are iconic films. And like Dwight Fry is not bouncing off the wall as Fritz, like he uh, as he is as, as Renfield in Dracula, but he still puts in a good performance. The brief performance you see him as Fritz in here, like we we've talked these two movies to death. Ninety years old, and if you haven't seen them by now, shame on you. I guess like all all I can say we've spoiled the death to you, but they're also ninety years old, so we should have to put a spoiler wall up for it. Uh, what about you? Um, yeah, I you know I like for you, you got to give them a, a chance. Like I, I absolutely love it, and for me, I'm I'm a sucker for classic films. I'm such a sucker for them. I I love them. I enjoy them. I love black and white films. They just got a different. They've got a different energy to them. They've got a different, just, I don't know, different view of the world. It's just, and in some ways it's really kind of beautiful 
and I I absolutely love them. Like I'm I'm just huge sucker for that stuff. So this is also you know kind of right up my alley with it being a black and white film and you know with your iconic actors and um, you know I very much very recently have stepped into the world of horror and have really loved it and so you know seeing these films are just you know really really enjoyed and you got to give them a chance absolutely i mean they're 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 not your usual you know fast-paced action flicks or anything like that but they're a very well-made um film films and they they are absolutely worth a watch if you have not watched them um you know they're they're really really good and yeah, de- definitely check them out. I echo that statement 110%. Um, so we're going to end the show a little bit differently than we usually do. So, Melissa, where can our listeners keep up with you? Uh, they can keep up with me on Instagram, um, at MissMelissaN25. And you can also, if you're interested, I have an art page on Instagram that's called Scribbles of a Wannabe Drawer. And on there, I have all my little drawings and things that I do on there, if you're interested. So where can they find you, Jared? Uh, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at QCA underscore Mista underscore J. Um, You can find me on there. Uh, We are in a post Zack Snyder Justice League World now, so at the time this episode releases, so I will be back on Twitter. <laughs> um, I will be taking a high. I took a hiatus before Justice League came out, so I could not be spoiled. But uh, yeah, you can find me on there. Um, I also am working on a YouTube channel with my buddy Mikey, who you've heard on this show, called Two Aging Bearded Nerds, where we review all those films when studios do not give a fuck about scaring your kids. So that will be coming soon. I promise. I keep plugging it. It's coming soon. I promise. Uh, as a podcast as a whole, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, nerd nations podcast. And you can even email the show with suggestions at nerd nations podcast at gmail.com. And if you, um, if you'd like to listen to us, as well as follow us on the social medias. Um, you can listen to us at uh, Podbean, and that's our sort of main home. Um, but you can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now most recently, iHeartRadio. And one last order of business before we bring it on home. I want—I didn't tell Melissa this, so Melissa, surprise. <laughs> I, I want to thank Robert Langinger of Pods and Monsters for doing our intro to this episode. Oh, wow. <laughs> How cool is that? So our little Frankenstein parody intro, I reached out to our friend Robert Langinger from Pods and Monsters, and he agreed to do it. <laughs> that is super awesome. Wow. Well, surprise. <laughs> so... Just because we're getting things a little bit differently here doesn't mean we still don't want you to be excellent to each other. But we know what we're going to take this out on a toast tonight. A toast to Dracula and Frankenstein for celebrating 90 years. Everybody have your drinks in hand if you are of age. Bo and Byram, you're not of age to be drinking. So, <laughs> so 
Raise your glass to when Universal couldn't make a monster movie wrong. 90 years and counting. May Bella and Boris reign long. To Renfield, who eats spiders and flies, a diet so divine. To Count Dracula, who never drank wine. To Henry, a doctor some would call insane. To his monster, the most sympathetic creature with an abnormal brain. And last, but not least, to the house of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. And do not represent the companies they happen to work for. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys.